we're going to talk about sin today. Um, anyone sin this week? No, you don't have to raise your hand. It's okay. It's okay. Um, sin. We, we love sin. We enjoy sin. Uh, some even think that sin is humorous and should be laughed at. Um, my guess is this. That you, and I know I have, you and I have laughed at sin before. Now, it may not be our sin that we laughed at. It may be somebody else that is sinning that we find either humorous or funny. The interesting thing is about sin is as you either do it, see it, laugh about it, Satan loves it. That's a fact. Satan loves. He is happy when sin is happening. But as believers, you and I know this to be a fact. This is a serious matter. It really is not something to be laughed about. There's a story of a pastor who had preached on sin, but as he had preached on sin, his focus of that sermon was on believers, on Christians who had or was living in sin. At the end of the service, he offered an invitation. And um, if you know, uh, I, you could probably... Uh, tell what denomination this story, this is a true story, is. Uh, the, the pastor went down front, and uh, he did his invitation and offered for those to come down and take his hand and come to Christ or share their sins. As he offered the invitation, one of his elders stepped out and came down the aisle. And tears were flowing from his face. And he took the pastor's hand. And he meant to say that his life was full of sin. <clears throat> but instead, he said, my sin is full of life. But he quickly caught himself and he changed it around. But I want to tell you something, folks. He was actually right, because his first statement is why he was in the second statement. His sin was full of life because his life was full of sin. Thanks be to God for the glory that he has offered us, the forgiveness and grace, the mercy that he has offered us, that he offered that day, that elder who comes and confesses. Pastor, I have sinned against my Savior. And this is who Jesus is, that he has forgiven us. He has forgiven us. And we are called to repentance in his name. Today we begin this series again in Romans. Uh, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is 
the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, Romans 1.16. That's our key verse for this series. And the title of the series, as you will see there and out at the road on our banner, is The Power of the Gospel. And so back in the fall, we began this series, and those first five chapters, Paul talks about sin and redemption. Sin and redemption. And now he begins to move away, not away from that, but in a different way of sharing. And he now is talking about the subject of believers' holiness and the righteousness that we are to live into that God demands from his children. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, sitting here or online or watching this at another time, you are a child of God if you are a believer. And he has called us to obedience, to his word, to himself. He has called us to live in the power of the Spirit, the Spirit that convicts us, yes, convicts us who are Christians, who sin. At this point in the epistle, he begins to share about the salvation and the practical the practical effect on those who are saved. And over these next three chapters, you will see that this is the focus that Paul is giving, that Paul is sharing about us as believers and how we're to live into the salvation that God has given us through his son, Jesus Christ. Paul, in his epistle, his letter to the church at Galatia, gives a very concise and a, a brief summary of this. He says in chapter 2, verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me, and the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Let that resonate a little bit. I have been crucified with Christ. This morning, the title of the sermon is Dying to Live. If you have your Bibles and you want to follow along this morning, you can turn into them to chapter 6, put your finger there, because I'm going to, this morning, read different verses as we go along instead of reading the entire passage up front. So you'll need your finger there, and you can follow along. They, the words or the scripture will be as I read those specific sections on the screen, uh, but it's always good uh, to have your Bibles open, and if you have a pen, to mark in the margins. I've told you this before, God is not going to strike you dead if you write in your Bible. If that was the case, I'd been dead long ago. My Aunt Opal used to tell me, yes, my Aunt Opal used to tell me as I watched her as a little kid writing in her Bible, I'd say, Aunt Opal, you're writing on God's Word. And she'd say, yeah, and if you come and look at it, there's almost every page filled with something. It's okay. Let's pray. Father, as we open your word this morning and as we see what you hold for us, the body of Christ, 
a collection of believers, children of the living God. Father, may you illuminate our hearts. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of all of our hearts be acceptable and pleasing in your sight. For you are our strength and our redeemer. And it's in your son's name that we pray. Amen. There is a danger of when you preach salvation by grace alone and faith alone through Christ alone, that there can be some misrepresentations taken from that. It's almost a, a license for some to say, yes, I can sin. The Apostle Paul was aware of this tendency in Romans 3.8, he says, and why not do evil that good may come? Again, he knew that that could be misrepresented. And then in chapter 5, in verse 20, he says, The law came so that transgressions would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. And he knew that there were those that would take that and take it out of context and, and look at that and say, Hey, if grace abounds more if I sin, let's just keep on sinning. Let's really sin and we'll have even more grace poured out on us as sinners. Let's just sin so that God's grace will abound. Now, we know that's not logical. We know that that just doesn't work. But he knew that there were some minds at the time that he was writing to and in Rome and those that would read such a passage, and he knew that they might go there. In fact, there were those, as I said, that really enjoyed sinning. Um, Hebrews 11.25 Tells us it's enjoyable, but you know what the rest of that verse says? Just for a short time. It's just pleasurable for a short time because it has to be reckoned with. And if it's not reckoned with in this life, it will be reckoned with one day. But there are those. There are those that tried to live into this. One example of that is the Russian monk Rasputin, and he dominated the uh, Romanov family towards the, the end of their final years. And, and he and what he preached and what he taught was that salvation came through repeated experiences of sin and repentance. That was what he taught. That's what he preached. He argued that those who would sin more would be and experience forgiveness more, even be more joyful in their experience of repentance. So here is a quote from Rasputin. It is the Christian's duty to sin. That's what he taught. Today's thinking, in many cases, 
by many people, even those who would say that I am a Christian, even some that say that I am a born-again Christian, have this same thought. It is such that they justify a perverted lifestyle or justify the lifestyle of sin as biblical. And those of us that believe that it is sinful, and actually the Bible says that sin should not be practiced as Christians, they would say, you're just wrong. But Paul, with this understanding as he quoted in, or as he wrote in 520, but where sin increases, grace abounds all the more, he knew that that question was going to come up. Well, if we sin and grace abounds, why shouldn't we sin? And then we come to this chapter. We come to chapter 6, and Paul begins to share with us about our salvation. And if you up until this point in the sermon or in the service have got something in your mind stirring other than what this next 14 verses has to say, I want you to set it aside. These verses are important for us to understand. They are so important as a follower of Jesus Christ for us to understand. And so Paul begins and he answers that question. Verse 1, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? And he gives an emphatic, a loud shout. May it never be. May it never be. And so he, he knows that hint is there. He knows that mindset might be there in what he has written. But in fact, he finishes this second verse and he says, How shall we who died to sin still live in it? How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Now, by definition, and I really don't think you can argue this fact with me, by definition... When someone dies, they don't continually die. When they die, they're dead. It's done. It's finished. It's permanent. <laughs> this body is going to die unless Christ comes back and calls and raptures his church up. This body is going to die. And it is a permanent death in that this body dies. Now, we know as believers that we when we die, cross over that wonderful threshold to eternal life in Jesus Christ. But as we live into this life, what Paul is trying to help us to understand in the life and death of Jesus Christ, that in death we die to sin. In his death we die to sin. And so this idea that a Christian could continually live in sin is unbiblical and it's irrational. 
You have the very Spirit of God dwelling in you. You have the Holy Spirit of God that is in you. And God does not coexist with sin. So as Christians, obviously, there's times that we sin, as we did prior to that conversion, that coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Yes, there are times that we sin, but we are not able to perpetually, to continue to live in sin as a Christian. This is a process this morning. You need to hear it, and you need to begin to wrestle with this understanding of who we are and whose we are in Jesus Christ. We cannot continue to live in sin as a true believer of Jesus. First John, John writes in 3.9, No one who is born of God, and here's the key word, practices sin. If you didn't get it from the Apostle Paul, you need to get it from the Apostle John that we do not live in sin. We do not sin so that grace will abound. We have grace. When we sin and ask for forgiveness, God's grace abounds. But as Christians, we should not, cannot continue to live in sin. The fact is so important for us to understand that Paul gives us this understanding of Christ and we die to the old self. This old self is a corpse by definition, has no vestige of life in it at all. None. But the new person, on the other hand, is regenerated. The new person is transformed. The new person is in the likeness of Jesus. We are made pleasing to God through Jesus, through Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. And our nature now is godly and righteous. I want to repeat that. Our nature is to be godly and righteous in our living. We are not perfect. We are not yet glorified. That will come. But as we live out this walk with Jesus on earth until he calls us home, we are to live godly and righteous before our maker. We've read verses 1 and 2. So verses 3 through 14, this, this section that continues, will answer two questions for us. The first question is, how do those of us who have been saved by grace in God through Jesus live without being live without being characterized by sin. And then secondly, how are we to live obedient in the light of God's grace that he has given us? And so first Paul begins to talk in verses 3 through 10 about the very nature of our union with Christ. And so we're going to look at verses 3 through 10 and then in sections, we're going to look at verse 11 and then 12 through 14 in these three movements this morning. And the first is the nature of our union with Christ. 
And so Paul reminds us that the results of Christian living is obedience in Christ. And this morning in this section, 3 through 10, there's a key word, and that key word is no. Three times Paul uses this word no in this section. The first time is in verse 3, the second in verse 6, and then we'll see it again in verse 9. And above all else, Paul wants us to understand. He wants us to know. He wants us to know the very nature of this union that we have, that Paul uh, wants us to, to see. And what does he do? He uses the imagery of baptism to help us to understand this union with Christ. Ron Ritchie is a pastor on the left coast, the west coast, and um, he was one day at the Pacific Ocean and he was baptizing some of the members of his congregation. And Pastor Ray Stedman tells the story uh, in some of his memoirs and, and wrote of this incident. And he says, as Richie, as Ron was baptizing, a lady came up with her nine-year-old daughter by the hand and says, uh, uh, Pastor Ron, I want you to baptize my daughter. And Ron thought, ma'am, I'm going to have to question her before I can just baptize her. Yeah, she needs to understand what this is about and and I need to just have some conversation with her. And she said, that's fine. So he, he took the, the young girl aside, and, and he began to talk to her about baptism and what it means and, and to kind of question her about her faith. Does she have faith in Jesus Christ? And he noticed that as he was talking and using his hands, as you know, Terry said, if you ever tie my hands, I'd have to quit preaching because I move my hand all, all hands all the time. Um, and so he was moving his hands, and he noticed that the sun had caused a shadow of his hand on the sand. He thought a minute. He says, honey, do you, do you see the shadow that's on the sand? She said, yes. He said, do, do you see my hand? And she said, yes. He said, you realize the hand is the real thing. The, the, the shadow is just a cast of the real thing. And he said, here's what happens. When you come to faith in Jesus Christ, that is the baptism. That is, that is when Christ comes into you. That's the real thing. When you surrender and give your life to Christ, that's the real thing. What baptism is, is the outward sign. It's like the shadow that you have died with Christ. You have been raised with Christ to new life. And let me quote what the girl if I can find it it's here somewhere so she said yes 
this is what I want to do because Jesus has come into my life. Past tense. She's ready for baptism because Jesus has come into her life. You see, so often many want to say that there's some civific power in baptism, but there's not. Baptism is the outward invisible sign of the inward and spiritual grace that you have already come to in Jesus Christ. What a perfect illustration. The hand is real, the shadow is not. But there's something there in the shadow because you see it is a sign of the real thing. I want you to look at verse 3 through 5 with me and listen to what Paul says. Now you just heard the story of baptism. Or do you not know, and there's that key word, do you not know that all of us who have been, past tense, recognize that, have been baptized into Christ Jesus, have been, past tense, he's talking to the believers, have been baptized into his death. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death, so that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so we too might walk in newness of life. For we, for we have become united with him in his likeness of his death. Certainly we shall also be in likeness of his resurrection. We walk in the newness of life of his resurrection. You see, that's our walk today. This is our walk now. We have been baptized into ha in him. We have been raised in him, with him. We have been united with him in new life. You can't overemphasize these words of Paul, of what it means for us as a believer Baptism bears that union, that very union with Christ. And in that fifth verse, as, as Paul talks about that union, he uses a botanical term here. He uses a term, united with him. And that united in the Greek means to be grown together. And that's important. United in the Greek means to be grown together. It's as though you take two twigs and you graft them together. You put them together and they join together in grafting and become one. That's what Paul is saying. That as we have come to faith in Jesus Christ, as we have been buried with him and raised to new life, that we have been united and grafted with our Savior. Get that, folks. We have been united with Jesus Christ. Galatians 3.27 For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. 
In other words, we have been in this union with Christ. We have been clothed with Christ. We have put on the very nature of Christ. And then in Corinthians 12, 13, he adds, For in one spirit, capital S, we were all baptized into one body, the body of Christ. We have been baptized into Christ. We have been raised with him in new life. This is what has happened. This is who we are. This is the profound union that Paul is trying to get across to us, that this is our position in our life, in our walk with Christ, that as we have surrendered to him and he is truly Lord over our life, that we are united with him. We are united with him in his death and resurrection. We died with him, and we were raised to new life with him if we have faith in him. Probably some hallelujah or praise God or amen or something. Be there. Galatians, again, that first sentence, we have been crucified, I have been crucified with Christ. No longer do I live, but the Christ who lives in me. Colossians 3.1, if then you have been raised with Christ, listen to what Paul says, you should seek things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. This is the obedience part. We are to live in to Christ. We are to be obedient in our walk with Christ because of what Christ has done and whose we are. We are to walk into, new, into the newness of this life. We are no longer slaves of sin, but we are slaves to righteousness. Look at verse 6 and 7. Here we have that word know again. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with. Get it? Knowing that the old self was crucified with him. So we have been crucified with Christ in order that the body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. For he who has died is free from sin. If you have come to faith in Jesus Christ, you have died to sin. You are no longer a slave to sin. You have been freed by that connection, that union, Paul says, to God. Oh, man. The body of sin, the vehicle of sin, has been rendered inoperable. And the power of sin in our life is broken. The power of sin is broken by what Christ has done for us. Paul concludes this section on the union with Christ, our union with Christ, in verses 8 through 10. 
He says, now if we have, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is the master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. He lives to God. Paul emphasizes this once for all, this once for all. If you look at the book of uh, Hebrews, you see that that theme just permeates through Hebrews. That Christ died once. For all. This was not a continuation. This was not something that had to be done over and over and over again. The work of Jesus is sure and finished. It is complete. And as we come to faith in him, sin is broken. Sin is broken. What happened on the cross was once for all who believe. I began the, the message today with saying that the turning to grace for some is a license to sin. But Paul tells us, emphasizes in this section, that first we must understand this profound connection that we have with Christ. We may not fully understand it. He says in other books, this is a mystery of faith. And there are some things that we just don't understand. But it doesn't change the facts. We are united in Christ's death and resurrection. And then secondly, that this shared death and resurrection means that sin is broken. The dominance of sin is broken. And we are freed by the power of the Savior to live our lives for Christ. Martin Lloyd-Jones gives a helpful illustration of this before we move into this verse 11. Lloyd-Jones says that, look at it this way. When we were connected to Adam, it's like two fields with a road in between. And in this connection with Adam and Satan, with our fallen nature, we are plowing in Satan's field, and Satan is, we are subject to Satan. We are his subject. We are a part of what he is doing. But when we come to faith in Jesus Christ, we move over to the other field on the other side of the road. And now we are part of God's field, and we are subject, to the jurisdiction of God. He says, here's what happens. As you are plowing as a believer in God's field, Satan is still over here in his field, and he's looking across the road, and he is sweet-talking you. He is tempting you to leave this field and come back to him. And Jones says, Satan often succeeds temporarily in drawing the believer's attention from his new master and his new way of life. But, and here's the but, but Satan is powerless to draw the believer 
back into the old field of sin and death. Satan doesn't have power over us. He tempts us. We will sin and need to ask for forgiveness and repent of that sin. But we do not belong to Satan as believers. We belong to Christ. He is our Lord. This is who he is. This argument to continue to sin and grace abound is just false. The reverse is true. It is impossible to live a changed life and continue to live in sin. So I'm going to put it a little bit stronger. Those who argue that grace allows allows that buffer of sin and ultimately if we just sin, God's going to be even more glorified because of our repentance. They are not Christians. They are not true believers in Jesus Christ. This is, is just the way Scripture tells us. And when you enter into union with Christ, when your life has changed in Jesus Christ, then that impulse, that desire to sin is broken. Let's finish these few verses that are left. So then Paul in verse 11 gives us, lets us consider the reality of this union that we have with Christ, this joining together, this grafting together. And so we have considered the truth of Paul's argument in 3 through 10 that there is a union. We know there's a union, but how does this work? And so we come to the practical act application of that and consider is our key word here in this. So verse 11 reads, Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. So consider yourself dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. This word consider here means reckon. It means to count. And it's 12 times in the uh, this epistle, this Romans letter, 12 times Paul uses this word consider. And consider is, a, is used as a, a business term. It means to reconcile one's account. To reconcile one's account. And so for us, it's this. Our account has been reconciled. Our account has been reckoned with through Jesus to God. Jesus has reckoned our account, and here's what's happened. Two things have ha has happened. We are, in verse 11, we are dead to sin, and we are alive in Christ. That's how we have been reckoned, how our account as fallen, as sinful, as connected to the fall with Adam, that we have been reckoned with, and we are considered now dead to sin, and alive in Christ. Hallelujah. Have you ever taken time to really think about 
consider, to consider the events of the cross and the fact that you died with Christ and was raised with Christ, resurrected with Christ. If you haven't, you ought to, because this is, I'll just term it prevention theology instead of corrective theology. What we often do is corrective theology. So we sin, and then we ask for repentance. It's what John talks about in 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. John is talking to believers in this section. And that is good, and that is right. And if you commit sin, you should confess and repent. And we know that God is gracious through Jesus Christ to forgive us. That's corrective theology. I believe preventive theology is a little bit better. And that is if we will understand and reflect on our union with Christ and what Christ has done with us, the fact that when we surrendered, we died to sin, we live in Christ, we were raised to new life, it actually curbs sin. Because the more that we think about our life with Christ and what he has done, we're not going to be thinking about sin. We're not going to be thinking and hearing Satan in his tempting to us as much. And so we need to hear this command. In effect, what Paul is saying here is keep on considering yourself dead to sin, alive in Christ. Dead to sin, alive in in Christ. And then finally, in the last three verses, he gives us a response to this union. What is our response to this union? And so, we know about the union. We are considering, reckoning with, knowing that we are dead to sin, alive, and now... The response is, the key word is present. Listen to verse 12 as he gives us this command. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lust. A command he gives us. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body. And as he continues this thought, he is very clear, he is very precise in what he's doing. Look at verse 13. First, verse 13a, he gives us the negative side of that. He says, and do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. So that's the negative side. Do not go on presenting do not. But then in 13b, he says, present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. As instruments of righteousness to God. What are those tools of righteousness? There are hands, there are feet, there are minds. There are words, our very tongue as we speak. 
These are the tools. This is the body that we use. We are to constantly use our tongue, our hands, our feet, our minds, all the tools that God has given us for righteousness, not unrighteousness. And we are to constantly be on guard. We are to constantly be on guard. Understanding that we belong to God. So this is kind of how it would go if we were talking to God. Father, here I am, alive from the dead. I have died with Christ and have been resurrected with Christ. Thank you for your gift of grace. Now and here is my body, my arms, my voice, my eyes, my mind. Take them all that they might be instruments of righteousness for you, to you, and not sin. Have you done this? So often we may dwell on the negative, I should not do this. But maybe we need to focus on the positive side of this verse and say, take my life and let it be consecrated, Lord, to thee. Paul has used logic in this passage. He has used three key words, know, consider, present. Know that it is amazing that you are connected, you are united with God. That you actually participated in his death and resurrection. Consider yourself dead to sin, sin and alive in Christ Jesus. And then finally, present your entire life all that you are, all that you have, everything to God, your entire being. So then, in dying, you are alive in him. Paul says, shall we keep on sinning? By no means. Look at what he says in the final verse. For, if, for sin shall not be master over you, for you are not under the law, but under grace. This is who we are. This is whose we are in Christ Jesus. We have the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that he has given us. And we need to claim it. We need to live it. Not in sin, but in life. We die to sin. We live in life to Christ Jesus, our Lord. May it be always this day and forevermore. Let's pray. Father, thank you for just these 14 verses of your scripture that remind us of what you have already done. You have forgiven us and provided a way of being reconciled, making our account right with you. Oh, Father, thank you. 
And we thank you for your son and his willingness to die for our sins. He was raised to life. We, through him, are raised to new life. We have been transformed. And Father, we pray that we would live into that transformation that you have given us. Oh, Father, may it be so. If we could ever just get a grasp, if we would ever allow ourselves to, to really get a grasp of what this means for us, it would change our lives. Thank you for what you have done. Your grace and mercy abounded. And it's in your son's name we pray. Amen.